Welcome to another episode of Inside You Miami Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Henry Ford, Dean and Chief Academic Officer of the University of Miami Leonard M. Miller School of Medicine. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Joshua Hare. Dr. Hare is the director of the Interdisciplinary Stem Cell Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, but you also hold several other important titles. He's the director of the uh, Sulfur Endowed Pro Program in Regener Regenerative Medicine. He's also Senior Associate Dean for Experimental and Cellular Therapeutics and Professor of Cardiology, Molecular and Cellular Pharmacology and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. That's quite a few titles. That means that you are very, very important. So uh, tell the audience, uh, Josh, uh, about your journey. Uh, from growing up in South Africa and, and to the point where now you are not only the director of the Institute of the Interdisciplinary Stem Cell Institute and professor of just about everything, uh, but also now an inductee in the National Academy of Engineers, so of inventors. So, so tell us a little bit about that journey. Well, thank you, uh, uh, Dean Ford. It's really a pleasure to be here with you and uh, tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, I grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, and um, I was always fascinated by science and, uh, as a kid. And my mom really uh, allowed me, and as a little kid, I wrought quite a bit of destruction as I <laughs> experimented with chemistry sets and so on and so forth. At home? <laughs> yeah. Wow. But my mom was very gracious. Uh, she let me do that because I think she was wanted to foster my my in interest and spirit of discovery. And I, I remember as a kid that um, growing up in the 60s, it, it was interesting to be in South Africa because the first heart transplant was done in South Africa in 1967. And the other thing I really remember as a kid- Christian Barnard. Christian Barnard, yeah. yes, at Frutuskir Hospital in Cape Town. And the first, the first moon landing was in 1969. And I remember that, I remember my mom taking me to watch it on uh, TV somewhere at, at the university that she worked at. And I think those really early uh, experiences made me, from a very early age, passionate about discovery and science. And I always wanted to um, do something to help people through the scientific method. And that's why I chose to go to medical school as opposed to uh, be a basic scientist and get a PhD. Well, tell us, uh, how old were you when you moved to the States from Johannesburg? I was 12. And again, I go back to uh, my mom because I was very fortunate that she decided to bring the family to Bethesda, Maryland, which as everybody knows, is the home of the National Institutes of Health. Mm -hmm. And so I was very lucky because as a, a high school kid, I, could, uh, I volunteered in a lab at the NIH and um, was working in a virology lab. This is, you know, the 70s. This is quite, quite some time ago. And I was uh, just reinforced, again, my fascination with discovery and the idea that the scientific method will lead to huge advances in medicine and, and actually clinical care, as, as we can witness looking 50 years, uh, looking back 50 years later. Well, wonderful. So... So you were working at the NIH in high school? Yeah, yeah. Wow, how did you get a job at the NIH as a high schooler? Well, again, this, this goes back to just being in the right place at the right time. So a lot of, um, you know, a lot of what happens in life is 
opportunities come your way and you have to take them. You know, when you come to a fork in the road, you have to take it. <laughs> that was Yogi Berra who said that. <laughs> Credit is due, absolutely. So my, um, uh, my brother's high school coach, high school soccer coach, was worked at the NIH, had a lab at the NIH, and I got to know him by going to these soccer games. And I, one day I just said to him, hey, I, can, I, can you take a volunteer in your lab? And he said, sure. So I went over there and started to, um, to culture viruses, uh, to help him culture viruses. Amazing. And, and that led to where you are today. Yes, yeah. So you went to Penn for undergrad. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about that and then some of the activities you had uh, while you were at Penn. <laughs> or did you want to go to medicine? I medicine? did. I did. Because, of the, because my interest in science was so early and in the 60s as a kid and my mom was fostering it. Um, you know, the 70s was a very exciting time in electronics and physics and biology. And in my high school biology class, I was like, this is going to be really cool. And the other thing that happened right around then, and, and, and I had the advantage to witness it by being at the NIH in this virology lab, was the, the introduction of molecular biology, the ability to make, to cut genes and to sequence them mm -hmm. and to make proteins in the laboratory. So in the 80s, this was the advent of biotech, molecular biology, mm -hmm. uh, making proteins in the laboratory. And so from a very early age, I could see that, you know, discovery and scientific application can lead to completely new paradigms in treatment. So now we see recombinant proteins, we take it for granted that these can be used as medicines, but at the time it was really brand new and exciting. So I chose to study a biochemistry at college, which was the major was heavily oriented towards uh, molecular biology at the time. So it was a very exciting time. Fantastic. And so from after Penn, you went to medical school at uh, Hopkins. Yeah. And, and um, so again, this whole idea of wanting to, uh, I'm very lucky because I knew what I wanted to do from uh, being a kid. So the uh, idea of applying molecular bio, uh, the idea of applying scientific discovery mm -hmm. to advanced medicine was something that I was, had that concept from, from being a child. And then I decided to go into cardiology um, because I was very influenced. The other theme I want to talk about is mentorship. Okay. Because I really believe, you know, you got to be in the right place at the right time. But that very much is who's your mentor, who's going to be your mentor. And I was, um, I met a, a very prominent cardiologist named Ken Boffin when I was a first year medical student. Um, he went on to be the chief of cardiology at Hopkins and unfortunately had a, a tragic early death. Um, but he uh, very heavily influenced me in the, in the medicine of cardiology. He was an expert in cardiomyopathy and myocarditis. And I loved his clinical style and his attention to detail with patients, but also his idea uh, taking it from now looking at from the patient side of how you need to look at the patient to understand what their medical needs are so that you can interface with the discovery side of things to bring those two together. 
And that's what we started to call translational medicine in the 90s and the, and the 2000s. So, so that's the genesis of your interest in, in heart failure? Yes, okay. was Ken, Ken Boffman and of course the patients, the, the tremendous clinical uh, material that we had at Hopkins when I was a med school and resident. He was an expert in myocarditis, which used to be rare, but now is on everybody's radar screen because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So he was studying viral myocarditis and how to treat it. It was a very rare disease at the time, very difficult to do randomized clinical trials. Um, but so the whole idea of personalized medicine and individual patient care was very much what his purview was. And I really admired and, and respected that. The idea that you have to go to the limit as a physician to help an individual patient, and you can't always rely on mega clinical trials or clinical trial guidelines to know what to do for an individual patient, but that every individual patient deserves the best that the healthcare system can offer them, even if that involves experimental therapies or, or thinking outside of the box. So uh, as one who is now um, interested in pursuing uh, heart failure as your career, and um, how did you evolve to introduce stem cell in this diagnostic or, or, or therapeutic right. uh, you know, algorithm? Right. So I think, I've, by the way, of the background I've shared with you, I've, I was always open to, to wanting to try new scientific things and coupling that really with the areas of, in my view, the most unmet need for patients which was, in my view at the time as a cardiologist, congestive heart failure. And I went on to specialize in heart failure and I'm board certified in heart failure and transplant. And this was Ken, I was following my mentor. Um, but I also pursued uh, a discovery lab and I had, an, I had a K08 award and then I turned that into an R01. And I was studying nitric oxide as a young cardiologist. But then around 2001, this idea of stem cells to treat, the, to treat heart failure became hugely in vogue. And to me, it all gelled together, right? Because I had watched the introduction of recombinant uh, proteins as a therapy, monoclonal antibodies. And to me, it just made sense that this, would, that this is the next generation of a brand new thera therapeutic approach to take a whole cell Instead of just a protein, we're going to take a whole cell and use it as a therapy. So let me, let me stop here for a second, and then you, know, then you can educate us, just this stem cell yeah. 101. So why would the stem cell be the cell of choice uh, for this particular disease? And tell us a little bit about what, that stem, what the stem cell is, um, and also the mechanism of action, and, and why you believe it would be appropriate to use it in your patients with heart failure. Right, so, um, so let's just start with the, the idea that heart failure, still the number one reason for hospitalization, heart disease, still the no number one killer in the United States and the Western world, and now in emerging in the, uh, in the emerging world as well as a growing big problem. So with, with all of the research and all of the money that's gone into it, all of the discoveries, it's still the number one killer. 
the, um, the primary problem with heart failure is destruction of cardiomyocytes that the body is unable to replenish in adequate number. So that's the heart cells for those of us who are not in the field. Yeah, okay. the, exactly. The muscle, cell, the muscle cells in the heart are a specific type that we call cardiac muscle cells or cardiac myocytes. And as everybody knows, uh, that heart has got to beat regularly for your whole life. If it stops for one to two minutes, that, that's the end of your life. So that muscle is a very finely tuned, precise organ that functions for uh, the duration of our lives. If it gets damaged and a big swath of tissue is lost due to a heart attack, that's what sets up the congestive heart failure and other electrical problems. So uh, we talked about heart transplant. There are about 60,000 people who need a heart transplant per year, and we only have the capacity to do 2,000. So there's a huge gap in the need. And so this is why the idea came. We have to try to replace those myocytes. What's, what's a good way? And the idea, if you can get a cell, you can take a cell and expand it in the laboratory and inject it into the damaged area and replace that area, grow new myocytes, something we call remuscularization, new cardiac muscle cells, then perhaps that would be uh, a cure or a treatment. And that idea emerged in the late 90s, early, uh, early 2000s. And that's what I'm still working on almost 25 years later. Well, what's, what's special about the stem cell that it can replenish the missing uh, muscle, the dead muscle, yeah. muscle cells? So a stem cell, it's good to think about what the definition of a stem cell is. Um, and there are a lot of misconceptions. The one thing we can all know, all as lay people, is that we are all the result of one stem cell, right? We all start out as a single cell, and that single cell grows into trillions of cells that all work together and create us. Um, so the idea that we could harness those stem cells in, in adult life and actually use them as a medicine, uh, first of all, when, when that idea was born, there was a lot of controversy because people didn't want to destroy embryos. The first principle would be you can get those cells from an embryo because the embryo is that early structure that is made up of stem cells. But then over time, investigators started to figure out how you could make adult stem cells. So the basic definition of a stem cell is something that can grow and divide and make copies of itself. That's def Point number one, and the second part of the definition is that those cells, as they're growing, can transition or transform into another type of tissue. And that's the basic definition of a stem cell. The single stem cell that we originate from can, turns into every type of tissue in our body, but adult stem cells can be uh, generated that are limited. They, so, for example, a hematopoietic stem cell or a stem cell that makes blood only makes blood, doesn't make the other tissues. So scientists were looking uh, 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 aggressively for that stem cell that could turn into muscle. And one of the early ideas was that, well, we can take what's called a mesenchymal stem cell. A mesenchymal stem cell turns into the mesodermal tissues, uh, bone, cartilage, 
fat, and muscle, mainly the skeletal muscle, but we wanted to know could it turn into that specialized muscle, the cardiac muscle. And the answer isn't as clear as we would have liked it because it probably doesn't turn into cardiac muscle. But along the way of doing our experiments with it, we showed that it still can help the heart repair itself by, by stimulating the heart to grow its own new myocytes. So the field isn't settled yet. The ideal stem cell hasn't yet been settled upon. But I think the principle of using cells as medicine, medicines is, is here to stay for sure. There's no question about that. So, so when they talk about induced pluripotent stem cell, that's not quite able to replace the um, cardiac myocyte? So the induced pluripotent cell, stem cell is, is the, uh, the other major discovery that came along along the way. It was only discovered in 2006. It was so exciting and such an important discovery that the Nobel Prize was awarded to Yamanaka in 2012 for so literally a six-year gap between wow. his discovery and the prize. The induced pluripotent stem cell allows you to avoid the use of an embryo. So you can take an adult tissue, like a skin fibroblast or any kind of tissue, and genetically coax it back to being a stem cell. Now we have discovered, and we have a wonderful induced pluripotent stem cell lab here at UM, which is an amazing resource for the, uh, the Miller School investigators. You, the, the IPS cells can be differentiated into any tissue that you want, including cardiac muscle. The problem thus far is actually getting those cells to be able to be injected and retained in the heart and to do so safely. <clears throat> what, what happens? What's the barrier? The earliest uh, experiments that have been done show that because they're so electrically active, they cause uh, what are called arrhythmias or unstable electrical beats. So our first principle always as a physician is, first of all, do no harm. And that's the first principle of the FDA. So until you can show that a treatment is safe, you can't really go ahead with testing its efficacy. But I do, I do hope that there will be a clinical trial that will begin in the next few years with induced pluripotent stem cells for heart. And we hopefully will be part of that, of that big study that will occur. So, so tell us some um, about your own work in the area and also about ISKI, the Interdisciplinary Stem Cell Institute, and, and what activities are taking place there and what uh, uh, therapeutic advances you have made and, and what diseases are you targeting? So when I was uh, recruited here, which is already 16 years ago now. Um, Time flies when you're having fun, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, the principle that we set up for the, the new institute would it, was that it would not just be cardiac. Obviously, I was a cardiologist. I was working in the cardiac area, but that it should be interdisciplinary. That's what the leadership wanted at the time. And so that's why it's called the Interdisciplinary Stem Cell Institute. The idea was to have to start with seven platforms and to expand that as needed. So some of the platforms are neurology, sensory neural, hematology, dermatology, 
orthopedics, cardiology. And there, there are others, but that's the general idea. So we, we picked some areas, and the idea was to really make this, to create a, a, an environment of cross-fertilization so that somebody who made a discovery in one area, if it applied to another area, that could be seamlessly transitioned to that other area and try to bring as many investigators into the fold. Now, what we discovered early was that the mesenchymal stem cells, I mentioned this already, uh, didn't grow the new heart muscle, but they seemed to have very favorable therapeutic effects. Mm -hmm. And the other very important thing about them is they're incredibly safe. For example, they don't turn, they don't create those arrhythmias when you inject them into the heart. If anything, they're anti-arrhythmic. So I believe that we discovered a new therapeutic principle almost by accident. We just had, it was the prepared mind observing the results of administering these cells first to animals and then to humans. So a couple of the things we discovered were, was that um, if you gave the cells to a heart patient, their lung function got better. So maybe, maybe the cells are having a whole body-wide rejuvenating effect, and therefore maybe we should test them in patients with lung disease. And we did that, and we, we, we created a pulmonary platform uh, with investigators from the, the pulmonary division, and we started a clinical trial. We did an early clinical trial in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And that's published, and the results were encouraging. And uh, we hope that that work will continue by, by pulmonologists elsewhere. The other thing we discovered, and this was really a big discovery, was that it appeared to rejuvenate the whole body. And this was particularly relevant in older people. So we came up with the idea of maybe this cell could have some kind of anti-aging property. So when you say rejuvenate the whole body, tell me, just describe that a little bit better for me. So one of the key things that happens as we age and is a very important marker of what we can call unsuccessful aging, there's this important concept of health span versus lifespan. Mm -hmm. So what we know is that as our lifespans have extended, our health span hasn't kept up with that. And we have this large, everybody is at risk for this large period of time at the end of your life that could be more than 10 years where you're alive, but your health isn't good. So your health span has not kept up with your lifespan. Now, one of the key markers of that deteriorating health in older people is a slowing down of how much you can walk. And we use that test in a number of medical areas, the six-minute walk test. We use that in, in heart failure patients because heart failure is a little bit like premature aging. So we found that people who got infusions of stem cells had an increase in their six-minute walk distance, a, a remarkable increase in their six-minute walk distance. Fascinating. And so it was a little bit of an aha moment, my goodness. So it's an epiphany. Yeah? Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe if we took older people who are declining in their physical performance status, maybe forget about their heart. It doesn't matter whether their heart is good or not. Let's give them the stem cells and see if their six-minute walk distance increases. And, and, and what was the underlying mechanism by which this 
they had better performance? Is it better lung function? Is it the heart? Or is it just that the, the joints are moving yeah. better? So these are great questions. And it, it underlies a, a, sh a shift in the way we have to think about cells as medicines as opposed to proteins or molecules. We're very used to finding a protein or a molecule that's very targeted to a particular pathway. And that has been the trend of medicine for the last couple of hundred years. And we've had a lot of success with that idea. Find the exact pathway or find the exact receptor and block that receptor or stimulate that receptor. But I think we all know that there's much more going on than a single pathway underlying every disease. So what the cells do is they, they're capable of doing many things. And what we've been doing in the basic science lab over the last 10, 15 years is unraveling all of the different things that the cells can do and linking their mechanisms with these positive outcomes. So it's a little bit like reverse translational medicine. It's translational medicine going in a virtuous cycle to the, uh, from the bench to the bedside and, the be and back again, and then doing that again. So we know that the cells have a very favorable effect on the immune system. We know that the cells can release exosomes, which are little vesicles that contain microRNAs. They have a favorable effect on the vascular system. And um, we've done a lot of work to look at how they stimulate endogenous repair. I told you the example of how we showed that cardiac myocytes, the heart muscle cells, can rejuvenate themselves after we give mesenchymal stem cells. So the idea of how the cells might affect aging or the lungs is multifactorial. It could be uh, a combination of effects on the immune system, reducing tissue fibrosis, increasing the vascular supply to tissues, and allowing tissues to heal themselves better. That's yeah, fantastic. So, so tell me a little bit about the breadth of um, disciplines or diseases that uh, ISKI uh, is pursuing. Yeah, so what we've tried to promote is, is as many uses as possible of the products we make, and then also to make as many products as possible. So we did set up what's called the CGMP laboratory when ISKI was founded, and this was really a wonderful facility that has the latest and state-of-art technologies to be able to make cells as, as, a, as a medicine to, under the right conditions so that they have the right safety characteristics that the FDA will allow them to be used. Um, we also make as many as, so we, we make mesenchymal stem cells from a variety of different tissues, and then also a, a many, many products. We make up to 17 products now that can be used as therapies. And those include exosomes, cells of different origin. We are trying to lead the way in using iPS cells, in, uh, you know, we can make iPS cells at the bench, but they have to go through the special uh, gear up to go through the GMP laboratory. We're focusing on iPS cells um, and vaccines as well, using vaccines. I wanted to tell you about one example. We've had incredible results uh, with mesenchymal stem cells. And this is really a tribute to one of my great colleagues, um, Dilip Yagvagal in neurology. And he has single-handedly um, 
taken on the, the charge of, of applying the mesenchymal stem cells to neurological injury, stroke, and other disorders. And he has made some remarkable, remarkable discoveries, and I really... For example. Um, he, is, he has shown that you can really reduce the size of a, of a stroke and also regenerate um, neurological pathways using, using very sophisticated, um, I think it's called diffuse tensor imaging MRI. And he's the first person that I'm aware of that has actually imaged the brain with that sophistication after giving cells. And what's really remarkable, he's shown it not only in animal models, but he's done a number of uh, um, expanded use, compassionate use patients as well, and has this imaging from humans. It's really amazing. And some functional improvement. Yes, Good. yes. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yes. In the last minute, tell me a little bit, you have 22 patents, and uh, you've also been able to create a, a company. So. Why is it important uh, to take our discovery um, to the process of commercialization? That's a great question. And it, it really is important because there is what's called, what I would call the translational gap, or the, some people call it the valley of death. When, when you take, dis, you, you, can, you can take discovery science only so far. But then that science has to transition into the, into the scale-up phase. We refer to commercialization, but that's just a euphemism because we live in a capitalist country. So we think about it as capital, uh, commercialization is just the, uh, the economic method that we use in this country to take a discovery. But what's really happening when you make a patent and make a company is you're scaling up the therapy the company is the entity that's taking the responsibility to make sure that it's safe and effective and working in a very regulated environment with, with the government, the FDA and the SEC, to try to take the discovery and package it in a way that can be useful to patients. And all th we, I think we've all seen an amazing example of that with the COVID vaccine. It, uh, the COVID, these vaccines and the technologies are all based on discovery, but the scale up to actually turn that into something that can be used by millions of people required a company to do it. And they worked with the FDA, they did the trials, they got the approval, and now it's commercialized. What a beautiful way um, to really capture the importance of translating discovery into a you know, commercialized uh, vehicle to bring this particular discovery back to the bedside. Yeah, so, yeah. so thank you very much uh, for um, putting it together in such a succinct fashion. I know we could keep talking for quite some time. There's so much more to talk about, but, but thank you very much uh, for breaking down the whole notion of stem cell therapy and also the important work that's being done at ISKI um, under your leadership. So thanks for Thank that. Thank you, D4. Really appreciate this opportunity. Wonderful. And this has been another episode of Inside New Miami Medicine. Uh, today, we were fortunate to have the director of the Interdisciplinary Stem Cell Institute, 
Dr. Joshua Hare, who really broke it down for us in such a fantastic way that now we all understand how stem cells work and why they really promise uh, to help solve a lot of our vexing clinical problems in the future. So see you next time for another episode of Inside Your Miami Medicine podcast.